0: One of the first calls I got when I began ministry many, many years ago was uh, I think my aunt or somebody called me and said that they had a friend of a friend or of a coworker or something who really needed to talk to somebody, and would I be willing to go talk to him? And I said, sure. So I got the address and got in my car and headed out there, and it was a part, uh, I, I, don't, I couldn't find it today. It was some place over in the Mid-Cities area, uh, just, but it was a very ritzy neighborhood. I remember driving in to the gate and thinking, wow, this is nice, double-checking the address. You know, this is back before the days of GPS. And uh, pulled up to this palatial home with fine-trim, blondes, you know, takes you about five minutes to drive from the mailbox to the front door. And I park there and and walk up and knock on the door. And uh, after a few minutes, the door just kind of cracks open about three inches. And this woman with a very severe looking uh, look, I'm going to say a severe face. (laughs) 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 I've seen some of those too. (laughs) But a very very severe look opened up and just didn't say a word, just kind of looked out the door at me. And it was kind of awkward, and I, so I said, well, I, uh, I got a call. That, he's around back, she said. Slam. So I thought, well, how do you get to the back of this place? So I walked around, found the way back, and you know, four or five car garage, one of the garage doors is open. So I walk into the garage and look around, and there's this man sitting on the corner... Uh, on top of an upside-down five-gallon bucket, just kind of sitting there in the corner. I thought, well, that's probably him. So I walk over and pull up a bucket and said, I uh, <laughs> said, hello, Mr. Ambers, which was not his name. I said, hello, Mr. Ambers, my name is uh, Wayne. And he said, call me Skeet. <laughs> okay, Skeet. You can call me Wayne. <laughs> we sat there and talked for a minute, and barely had we, you know, s- very awkward because, you know, you, you total stranger. You don't really know how to begin a conversation that you expect and hope is going to get very intimate pretty quick. And we weren't into it very long, and he just dumped the truck. He, um, he said that he single-handedly his words had built DFW Airport. And somewhere in the conversation of uh, him talking, he said, uh, with regard to his family, already I kind of got a hint about how his wife felt, <laughs> but he also said that his kids were feeling pretty much the same. And between the conversations, you know, we'd talk a little bit back and forth, he would reach down in this paper bag and pull up. You know, I never saw what it was, but his eyes were bloodshot, so it was clear what was in there. And I could smell him, and it was clear what was in there. And every time he'd take a a stiff jolt, he'd kind of turn and he'd look at the garage door to make sure nobody else was looking in. And then he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, I missed nine Christmases as he was busy building the airport. And I shared with him about Jesus Christ and asked him what his relationship was and his perspective on uh, Christianity, and talked with him just about the fact that, you know, pouring himself into being a successful businessman, living in a palatial home, uh, making a lot of money, making a name for himself, even a nickname for himself. Um, leaves him very unsatisfied and he kind of shook his head and then I shared the gospel with him and said you know the solution that you're looking for is really found in Christ the one who created you the one who gives you purpose the one who designed the life that you're trying to find and figure out and he looked at me and maybe he looked at me straight in the face prior to this, but I, I know that he definitely looked me straight in the face at this moment. And he gave me the strangest look when I when I told him that he needed to place his faith in Christ. He, he looked at me like I'd just spoken Chinese to him. It was a look like, I, I don't even understand what you're saying. It was a blindness. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody in, in a way that what they look at you and you are just they they just clearly don't get it. And yet the gospel is such a simple message. And I, I remember driving away after what I feel was a not a waste of time, but a fruitless conversation because I, I we could never connect. Driving away from all this money and just saying praying uh, for him, but just thinking, you know, Lord, please keep uh, this family close to you and uh, draw them. I have no idea what happened to him. But the conversation I had with this man reminded me of the conversation that Jesus had with the man that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 10. And I'll give you a uh, Mark chapter 10. Yes, thank you. I'll give you a spoiler alert, the result was not all that different. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been teaching throughout this gospel, offering the, the long-awaited kingdom of God to Israel, validating that He can give them the kingdom by doing miracles. He, he's proven it. He can, he can make it happen. But they've rejected him, because they don't want a Messiah like that. They want a Messiah, uh, They didn't want a Messiah who required repentance. They wanted a Messiah who was just a good political deliverer, and who took care of them physically. And so, um, Jesus began to focus on the twelve disciples. Instead of offering the kingdom to Israel, he knew that would be rejected. He began to focus on the 12 disciples and preparing them for the age of the church. And the last part of Mark that we've been looking at, the last several chapters, he has really, the Lord has really been focusing on the apostles. And what he does today in talking with this rich young ruler, we often call him, is still very much focused on training the 12 and, of course, by principle, training us. Mark chapter 10, let's start with verse 13. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Let's pause for a second. Bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them, so that he might bless them, But the disciples rebuked the people who were doing this. How'd you like to have Jesus do your baby dedications? Wouldn't that be great? Uh, People brought children to Christ for blessing, and the disciples rebuked them. They probably thought, you know, we've got more important things to do than Sunday school here, Jesus. We've got the big service to take care of. Well, we don't need to to waste our time here with with children, but they had forgotten what Jesus taught them in the previous chapter. Now look back for a second in chapter nine, verse thirty six nine thirty six Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, He said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Literally, Jesus is telling them that children matter. And there's a reason that they matter. If you look back in chapter 10, He tells them why they got a rebuke. Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Literally, Jesus said, stop or start allowing them to come. Stop preventing them, because to such as these. Jesus is making a comparison to people like children, to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs. The kingdom of God. Jesus is going to use this phrase a number of times throughout the passage that we'll be looking at today. In fact, He uses it one, two, three, four, five times and all comes from the lips of Christ every time it's mentioned. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the thousand-year reign. It's the millennial kingdom, is what we know as, uh, in the book of Revelation, talks about the thousand-year reign of Jesus. It's the Old Testament kingdom, the one that Jesus has been promising, uh, that's been promised from the Old Testament. He's been offering to Israel, and yet Israel's going to reject. The kingdom of God belongs to such, to people like this. What does he mean by that? Well, look further. He's making a comparison. Verse 15, "'Truly I say to you, "'whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, "'like a child, will not enter it at all. "'And he took them in his arms, "'and began blessing them, laying his hands on them.'" So just like he did in chapter 9, he he takes this child in his arms and he blesses the child, But he uses the child as an illustration. In chapter 9, he used it as an illustration, and he also uses it as an illustration here. And the illustration here is that there is a person whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child or as a child. This is not, uh, some have used this as a justification, basically, for infant infant baptism because, uh, you know, the kingdom of God belongs to children. But Jesus is using this as a metaphor, or as a, I should say as a simile, because he uses those, these words, like, as. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, it's going to become very clear as the passage continues, but this is how Jesus sets it up. He blesses these children, and so the implication is he will bless those who are like children. Let's keep reading, verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, at this point, we're not supposed to know this is the rich young ruler. Our subheading has given that away above it. You probably, if you're familiar with the story, you know this is the rich young ruler. But we don't know he's rich at this point. We just know he's a man that's run up and asked Jesus this question What can I do to inherit eternal life? And he calls Jesus a good teacher. But rich or poor, his question works. And rich or poor, Jesus' answer works. Jesus asks him a question in answering. Don't you love it? When Jesus does that, you ask him a question and Jesus asks you a question. And the answer to the question that he asks is going to begin the conversation about the question that you asked him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, Jesus says. It doesn't mean that he isn't good. He just simply asks, do you know why you're calling me that? Only God is good. God alone is good, and nobody else is good. And so if no one is good except God alone, and that includes you, rich young ruler, then in a sense, Jesus has answered the man's question before he's even answered the man's question. What, What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. In other words, you can't do a thing. You're not good enough to inherit eternal life. That is the implication behind Jesus' question, or behind his statement. No one is good except God alone. So then he answers the man's question. If no one is good except God alone, you have to be like God. You have to be holy. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. What does it take to enter heaven? Jesus tells him, If you keep God's law, you can merit salvation because God's law reflects God's character. God is good, His law is good. You want to enter heaven? By doing, you want to know what you have to do to enter to enter eternal life? Be as holy as God. No problem. Do the commandments. And the man has the gall to say, "I've done all these from my youth up." The purpose of the Old Testament law was never to provide a way of salvation. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 verse 6 says this, God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So, you want to earn salvation? Great, here's what you got to do. And perseverance, do good, seek glory and honor and immortality, great, eternal life is what you get. Anybody doing that? No, no one is good except God alone. Paul goes on, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. And again, God will render to each person according to his deeds. So if you want to be judged by your deeds, Paul says, Here are the options. You be perfect or you incur God's wrath. Jesus is basically saying the same thing. You call me good, but only God is good. And we can see if you're good by asking, have you obeyed the commandments? Because if you haven't obeyed the commandments, James says if you've broken just one part of the law, then you've broken all of it. The purpose of the Old Testament law was never to provide a way of salvation, but to show you that you need salvation. To hold up to you God's perfect holy standard and for you to look at it and realize you don't meet it. The good news of the gospel comes after the bad news of seeing yourself as you really are. Just this morning as Kathy and I were driving in, she said something like, um, "You, you really know who you are the more you know who God is. And Jesus is is teaching a very similar thing here to this young man. In a very gracious way, Jesus is saying to this young man, you know, you aren't who you think you are. You aren't who you think you are. And the reality is he could say that to every one of us. You want to get to heaven, you want to get to eternal life, you want to get to God's kingdom, to the eternal state with the Father, you have to be as holy as the Father. Jesus said it, Paul confirmed it, you could earn it, but nobody does. All have sinned. And I like, in verse 20 here, notice it says he calls him teacher now. He doesn't call him good teacher. He's learned that lesson. Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And Jesus shows him that he is not as good as he thinks. In other words, he's saying, I'm a good person. I am a good person. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. One thing you lack. One thing, that's it? I mean, a loving God could overlook one thing. That's not that big a deal. I mean, you kept all the commandments and there's one thing you lack? That's pretty hard. That's pretty pretty harsh. Actually, Mark tells us, that was very loving. For Jesus to love this man enough to be honest with him. There's one thing you lack still. You're in love with your stuff. Go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. The unlikely theologians of the 1970s wrote a song that could represent the anthem of every person in this room, no matter when you were born. Of course, I'm talking about Steppenwolf's song, Born to Be Wild. You get the picture of Peter Fonda on his Easy Rider motorcycle, and the the music starting, and it's really great until you listen to what they're singing, born to be wild. And believe me, that is all you want to listen to of that Steppenwolf album. My dad got that album, and I listened to the whole thing, and it's like, anyway, don't don't listen to the rest of the album. (laughs) But that song is the anthem of all of us. We were born to be wild. We were not taught it by our culture. You ever notice you never have to teach your kids to sin? They teach you how to sin. It's it's part of who they are, and it's part of who we are. In a world that makes bestsellers out of books like I'm Okay and You're Okay, we will never see on the shelf a bestseller called I'm Totally Depraved and You're Totally Depraved. <laughs> and yet, ironically, the, uh, the best-selling book of all time began with that very theme. The Bible began with that very theme. And total depravity, that sounds like a pretty harsh theological term, but it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. Some of us still have a ways to go as being as bad as we possibly could be. But we'll get there. No, total depravity isn't as bad as you possibly could be, but it means you're as bad off as you possibly could be. Because there's nothing to commend you before a God who is holy. You can live a life that's fantastic, but if you lack one thing, it's enough. Because God is absolutely holy. And to be in the presence of God you cannot have one iota of sin. This man had done a lot of great things by his own admission and by Jesus's admission. He says he only lacked one thing. That's pretty good life. And yet it was enough to keep him from the very thing that he sought. The good news is only good news because it solves the problem of bad news. And we have to be willing to hear the bad news, or the good news isn't good news. You don't even realize your need for it. If you don't realize that you need a Savior, then you will not place your faith in the one who has saved you. Let me read once again from Romans, this time in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Romans 3, 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You see, total depravity is not a New Testament concept. Paul is quoting from the Psalms there. As far as the Old Testament goes, We are as bad off as we possibly could be. We were born to be wild, and we never outgrow it. No one is good except God alone. So Jesus tells him to turn away from his false pursuit, from his false security, and to follow Christ. And it's interesting the way he phrases it, because you can sort of see a pattern. He urges him to make two decisions that change his object of his devotion. He says, Go and give, or basically give, everything you have. That's one object of devotion, and that's what his object of devotion has been prior to this point. Everything that he has, that's what he has lived for. Go and give everything that you have. Come and follow me, your new object of devotion. To turn, To, to repent is basically to have a mindset of changing the mind or to change the mindset, to change your life direction from pursuing one thing to pursuing another thing. That's what Jesus is urging this man to do. Now this isn't a literal command for all of us that we've got to go sell all that we have and to give to the poor and come and follow Jesus. Jesus gives particular commands to particular people, depending on their particular need. Remember in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus never told Zacchaeus to sell everything. Zacchaeus, on his own, realized that, his, that he had defrauded people because of money, and he paid, paid them back. He had no problem getting rid of the property that he had, had gotten and had lived for. It's not talking about having a vow of poverty. It's talking about being poor In spirit, Jesus places his finger on this man's one barrier to God, his money, his property, his stuff. Look at verse 22, at the man's reaction. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Every time I read that I think about that man on the 5-gallon bucket in the garage. What commandment had he broken? You shall have no other gods before me. I read a fascinating account of John Franklin back in 1845 tried to find a northwest passage uh, to the Arctic and his ship got stuck in the ice. And the preparations that I read about for this trip described it really more as an officer's club in England than than an expedition up into the Arctic. Search parties, when they found Franklin and his crew, who perished, when they found them, uh, they found the crew's bodies that had set off in search of food when all their supplies ran out. They were stuck there and all their supplies ran out, and then they decided to go look for food. They found one, one of the crew members frozen, clutching his engraved flatware. <laughs> first things first. You know, I read that and thought, who knows why he was holding that. It's a great illustration of materialism, but who knows the real reason he was holding it. But it is a great illustration because it's a picture of ourselves, as we are dying of hunger, we are engraving silverware. It's the first time in the book of Mark that someone comes to Jesus for help and doesn't get it, and it's only because he's unwilling to receive it. Jesus is offering it, but the man's unwilling to receive it. He went away grieved because he was unwilling to turn from his true devotion and unwilling to follow Christ. There's a principle that leaps from the text here, and it's this, that Christ calls for a decision to abandon every other object of devotion but himself. Christ calls for a decision to abandon every other object of devotion but himself. It's a decision that every one of us in this room is is called upon to make. And we make it on a number of levels. First of all, you come to the place in your life where you realize, as this man failed to realize, that there's nothing that you can do to earn the salvation that is given to you as a gift. That God's holy standard doesn't lower the bar. That his holy standard is himself, absolute, pristine holiness. And the only way that we will meet that standard is if we are we given that standard as a gift. We will never meet it any other way. And the good news is we are given it as a gift through faith in Jesus who died to pay the penalty for the sins that we committed. And he rose again to show that that penalty was paid for. So Christ calls for a decision to abandon every other object of devotion but himself. One thing you lack, Jesus said. Now, let me ask you a question, just in the silence of your heart. Is there anything you lack? Is there one exception in your life? You know, it's very easy, once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, to assume that he is still the object of our devotion. Remember, his disciples are standing there listening, and he's about to turn his attention from this rich young ruler and make it a lesson for the apostles and ultimately for us. Is there anything standing in the way of your devotion to Christ? Remember after, I think it was about 30 years, the church in Ephesus had had the great Apostle Paul there, had had uh, Timothy there, Paul had written letters to Ephesus' pastor Timothy, Uh, the Apostle John spent some time in Ephesus, I mean, Ephesus had great teaching, and yet in the book of Revelation, Jesus says to them, one thing I have against you, you have left your first love. And he tells them, Repent and turn back. Is there anything that is in the way of between you and your devotion? As Jesus, as your devotion, Jesus is not just a good teacher, unless you're thinking of good in the sense of God, He is God in the flesh, and he should be followed because he alone holds the keys to forgiveness and salvation. Now look at what Jesus said to his disciples now and to us after this man left. Verse 23, Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? The thought in the Old Testament, generally speaking, and generally speaking was true, that if you were wealthy, it's because you were living a godly life and God was blessing you. We see this true of the patriarchs. We see it generally true in the book of Proverbs. Of course, there are always exceptions both ways. But, but the thought is, this man was rich. God has blessed him. If a rich person can't get into heaven, how in the world can just plain old you and me? And in three verses, three times, Jesus uses the word kingdom of God verse 23, enter the kingdom of God, verse 25, enter the kingdom of God. Three times he talks about entering the kingdom of God. And notice in verse 24, he calls them children. Where have we seen that before? Back in verse 13, where we started, they were bringing children to Jesus, verse 14, do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus is making a connection between that incident of the of the children. To enter the kingdom of God you have to be as a child. Not as a rich person, but as a child. The difference in perspective is a difference in allegiance. It's a difference in priority. It's a difference in the object of devotion. Who is the object of a child's devotion? Their parents generally speaking their parents a child is amazing in their they just their faith we look at it as naivete they don't know any better when they grow up they'll realize they shouldn't be placing their faith in the parent no jesus is saying that's a wonderful thing that a child has this much love and trust and confidence in a parent that they want for nothing A kid doesn't worry about where its next meal is coming from. It's coming from mom. It's coming from dad. A child doesn't worry about what they're going to wear. It's coming from the parent. What am I going to do today? I don't know. But mom and dad got a plan. Everything in a child's mind is geared toward the father or the mother, the parent. And that's the kind of mindset Jesus says that we have to have. But not only for that initial decision of walking with Christ initially, but it's the mindset we carry with us every day. The first love that Jesus spoke of to the Church of Ephesians is the love we had of Christ at first. It's the love of a child to a parent. And somehow we outgrow that love, and we gain property, and we get distracted, and then Jesus comes into our life one, one day and says, one thing you lack. This eye of the needle. Boy, you've heard some whoppers on that, haven't you? Verse 25. You know, typically, it's, there's this gate in Jerusalem. You know, the, 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 the urban legend is there's this gate in Jerusalem where a camel with a pack on his back can't make it through because the gate's too small. The camel has to take everything off its back, get down, and crawl in. In other words, you don't enter into heaven unless you're humble. Jesus said it's impossible. So... The the point is not that it's difficult, the point is it's impossible. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle, no matter how humble the camel is. <laughs> humble the camel is. Yeah. Can't happen. And that's Jesus' point. Why is it hard for the rich to be saved? Not because they're rich, but because often they're blind to their need. I've kept all these things from my youth up. He was blind. To the reality that he hadn't kept it all, that there, was a, that there was a God ahead of God, and that was his money. USA Today had an article spotlighting multi-billionaire Ted Turner. Listen to what Turner said. He said, you know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you put your lipstick on or you're shaving, you are looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. You know, it's so easy for us to look at this passage, to look at this man, to listen to Turner's words, and to think, well, you know, that's never going to apply to me because I don't have that kind of wealth. I certainly don't have that kind of attitude. But it does apply, because no one is good except God alone. Jesus calls his disciples children. In fact, it's the only time in Mark that Jesus calls them children. And he uses the exact same word that he uses earlier. The disciples' question, who then can be saved, is very similar to what the rich young ruler asked in verse 17. Look at those two questions sort of side by side in your mind. Verse 17 says, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, look at what the disciples said. Then, who can be saved? They're both asking a very similar question. How do you get in, then? How do you get in if a rich person can't get in? And and Jesus' answer is very clear. Verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's the solution. Um, On our own merit, Jesus had said it earlier, no one is good. In other words, on your own, no one. That's why he goes on to say in this verse, "With, with people it's impossible because you're born to be wild. You know, every religion except Christianity says that you get to God or your version of God by living a good life. Christianity says not only can you not live a good life, but the works that you try to earn God's favor actually offend him because you can't get to God by living a good life, only by placing your faith in the means that he's applied. It's a gift. And if you, as a Christian, are trying to continue to keep God's favor through living a good life, Realize where you started. You realized at first that you can't keep God, that you couldn't earn God's favor initially, and so you placed your faith in Jesus. Now, as you live your life as a Christian, God's not pleased with you simply because you read your Bible or you come to church or even that you come to the marathon class. He's pleased with you because he's pleased with Jesus, and you have accepted Christ. If you have accepted Christ, he has accepted you. There's nothing else you need to do. Your life is a big thank you. Well, Peter can't stand it any longer. He has to say something. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for, the, for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What is Jesus saying? Well, First of all, what is Peter asking or saying to Jesus? He's saying, look, this rich young ruler that went away sad, you know, we're real sorry about that, but we haven't done that. We have left everything. We have left everything and followed you. That's exactly what you just told this guy to do. And we've done it. In and, and one of the other Gospels, Peter goes on to say, so now what do we get? What's in it for us? The apostles are still struggling with what Jesus is trying to get them beyond, and that is we're the greatest, right? We're the greatest. That's what they were struggling with in the previous chapter. And Jesus answers and he says, look, if you've left house or brothers, farms and all this, in this life, you get a hundred times as much. How, how, what does he mean by that? What he means is you are now in the family of God. And all of our houses are all of our houses. That we, we have this wonderful community in which we get to share with one another. And we have a family that is a hundred times as big as the family that you may have had to leave in order to trust Christ. That's what Jesus means. Oh, and by the way, you also get persecutions in this life for following me. But in the age to come is eternal life. And then Jesus adds, verse 31, the clincher. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Where have we heard that before? Turn back to chapter 9 and look at where he said it. And in the context of what he said. Verse 35 is where he said it. But look back up verse 33, chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. The first shall be last. The point is, leaving, leaving all this and following Christ doesn't just mean that you follow him, but following him means you become like him, that you are a servant. The first will be last and the last will be first. You want to be first? Be last. Following Christ means that you are a servant, that you have a servant's heart, not that you're pushing your way, elbowing your way, to the front. Christ calls for a decision to abandon every other object of devotion, including yourself. In our garage, we have a, uh, a drill press. It's a pretty tall drill press. stands about this tall. It's a tool. It's just a red tool, for those of you who don't know what a drill press is. But it's a it's a red tool, and it's big, and it's red. And we have windows, and sometimes hummingbirds will fly in there, attracted to this big red drill press. They're smart enough to get in, but they can't figure out how to get out. The garage is wide open. And so I'll get in there and just start shooing them. You know, I'll get a, something and try to... And they'll just come right back to the drill press, or they'll... Hummingbirds just aren't that sharp. That's, that's kind of what I figured out. And finally, I thought, you know what? If you want to stay in this garage... Flying around, you can do that. And I just wait for them to get tired. I wait for them to quit flapping around and trying to figure it out. And finally, when they are so exhausted, they will allow me to come up and either, I've not yet been able to put them on my finger, but I can get a long stick and just kind of stick it up next to them. They're too tired to fly off, they just kind of hop on the stick. (laughs) And then slowly carry them out, and then off they go, outside. Outside. Uh, you know, that is exactly the way it is with us and the Lord. That we fly in and we're trying to do it our own way, and the Lord says, You know what? I'll just wait. Eventually, you're going to get tired of that, and you're going to let me help you. This man felt a devotion that devotion to Jesus Christ should cost something, but not everything. Jesus says you have to transfer trust from yourself. To him, I love that Jesus loved this man, but he left the decision to him. The same is true of you and me. He leaves the decision to us. Let's pray. Father, this familiar text comes to us in a fresh way, reminding us not only of our initial decision to abandon all other forms of devotion and place our faith in Jesus, something this man was not willing to do. But instead, we, we, those of us who have placed our faith, who made that initial decision, can still somehow get sidetracked and get distracted and like the apostles to think, okay, now we're in, what's in it for us? Help us to drink deeply of Jesus' words, to quit flapping around the garage and to rest, and to see ourselves as a servant, just like Jesus was rather than the kingdom of God is here now to serve me. Show us, Lord, how we can be more like the one who is worthy of our complete devotion. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.